As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Tribune Audio Network. Head in the clouds. Exploring weather and why. And now, here's your host, the man who knows that behind every cloud is another cloud. Meteorologist Andrew Stutsky. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on Head in the Clouds, another episode here. Meteorologist Andrew Stutsky with WQAD-TV here in the Quad Cities. Uh, an exciting show for you today, or podcast, rather. Uh, I have a really awesome guest with me uh, via phone, Dr. Victor Gensini from Northern Illinois University. He's an assistant professor of meteorology there. Uh, and, of course, I can't brag about him enough because that's my alma mater, uh, attending Northern <laughs> Illinois University, graduated in 2016. It's been three years already. Uh, unfortunately, he wasn't there when I was there, but it wasn't long after I graduated that Victor landed at Northern. So I want to thank you again so much for joining us for our podcast today. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with who you are, kind of what your what your story is, give us a little bit of background information about what, you're, what you do uh, there at Northern. Yeah, Andrew, so it's great to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Um, like you said, Professor at Northern University, uh, where I do a lot of research uh, surrounding tornadoes and hailstorms across the United States, uh, both from a historical perspective, uh, but also kind of forecasting into the future, uh, as well as looking at the potential for changes in climate on severe thunderstorms. And so that's my sort of research angle, my research group at NIU. Um, I also teach at NIU. I teach the upper level undergraduate meteorology courses and kind of wear a bunch of different hats in the field of meteorology, uh, different task force and so on of things that are uh, kind of up and coming on the bleeding edge of research. And so I'm always busy. I always have things going on, but it's really great to be on the podcast. As you know from being a meteorologist, one of the coolest things about our job is that we get up every day and there's never the same. There's always a different pattern to look at. There's always a different storm to analyze. And uh, each of them in in their individual components are, are all different. But when you put them together in the aggregate, um, they can really tell you a lot about specific situations. And while, again, no kind of two weather patterns are ever the same, that makes it exciting. Uh, they're all uniquely indivi- you know, individual, and, and that sort of makes it difficult from a forecasting point of view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our job is never the same every day, and that, that is for sure, which is nice. It kind of keeps us on our toes. What yes. kind of um, – what got you interested in weather? Was there a certain event that kind of sparked that or – yeah, good question. So uh, when I was in high school, actually, a tornado uh, passed through the town of Granville and hit my high school, uh, Granville, Illinois, which is uh, would be near far eastern viewing area in Putnam County. And uh, that storm traveled across the Illinois River and hit the town of Utica and unfortunately uh, killed folks there in Utica. And uh, I, I didn't really know you know, I had I have real interest in, in weather before that, but it wasn't until that event that 
I saw the damage firsthand, and uh, that kind of solidified my career in atmospheric science before uh, heading up to Northern Illinois University like you did for my bachelor's degree in meteorology. So that was kind of the first event that really, for me, kind of sealed the deal. Excellent. Yeah, we all, we all seem to, if there's one thing I've learned in just being in meteorology and through school, we all had this one event that just kind of really impacted us and, and really turned us onto this field of study. So it's interesting to see how that story and that pattern yeah, exactly. uh, continues with another person. Now, recently, uh, we just did a story, and actually you can get to it on WQAD.com right now by now, uh, but you just you know kind of got through an interesting study uh, looking at uh, tornado history and things like that, where tornadoes are, are being spawned where they're impacting people, and the study was showing a little bit of a shift. So if you want to kind of give us some background information on what exactly this study was and kind of some of the things you looked at to determine uh, some of the the outcomes, if you will, of, of looking at all of this data. Sure. Well, you know, if you like sports, you probably like watching. Uh, and part of the reason you like watching Sports Center is because they break down all the stats for each of the sports, right? And so, for me, as a scientist with severe weather, I'm really I like to keep the stats, if you will, the record books of tornadoes, hailstorms, and so on. And one thing that we've seen in research over the past 20 years is that the number of tornadoes that we get every year across the United States is relatively constant. We don't we haven't really seen an upward or a downward trend in the total number of tornadoes in the United States, and that's especially true for the strong tornadoes. Uh, we rate tornadoes, of course, as you know, on the Fujita scale, which is really uh, a damage scale based on how intense the tornado is. And so if you look at especially the strongest tornadoes through time, we really don't see a trend. But, uh, you know, a, a, a twist on that type of research would be, okay, well, maybe there's no trend across the entire U.S., but is there a trend at the local scale, say an individual county, like my home town, uh, my home county of Putnam County. Maybe maybe there's a trend in local scale uh, changes that we're seeing. So in other words, we could have a big increase in the state of Illinois and a decrease in the state of Indiana or a decrease in the state of, say, Iowa. Maybe the trend, you know, uh, the trend is actually level or flat, but one area sees a big increase and the other sees a big decrease. And so that was really a driving force behind looking at local scale potential changes in the in the climate tornadoes. And you were looking at a at a certain time period, right? This is going back a, a number of years until just recently 2017, I believe. That's correct. So good when I say good, I say we really started keeping uh adequate tornado records in the mid-1950s. This particular study started at 1979. We're very comfortable with that period of record beyond 1979 because we also have satellite uh, to help back up those observations that we're seeing. And that satellite and, and, and really upper air weather balloon data allows us to kind of verify the environments that these uh, tornado, tornadic storms occur in. And so, but it, it, this study started in 79, but if you go back to 1955, you still see the same results. And that is uh, the tornadic trend for tornadic storms in places of, of so-called tornado alley think of north texas oklahoma kansas and nebraska the trend there for tornadoes has actually been downward and it's been upward or increasing in frequency through time in places like illinois indiana iowa and portions of the mid-south united states where we have a lot more people living 
Yeah, and I think that that also kind of lends to the fact that there's a lot more risk involved when you talk about moving that actual tornado alley a little bit more eastward. I mean, when many of us may think about Nebraska and Kansas and Oklahoma, even parts of Texas, we may think, yeah, there's some dense population centers there, like your major metro areas. But otherwise, I think most of us are thinking about open oil fields and maybe a lot of agricultural use. But what's one of the consequences of this moving east? The fact that we're getting more population, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And so when you when you look at the entire tornado as a hazard, and we look at the hazard as of essentially what's the background risk, which is kind of your probability of having a tornado, probability of having one of these one of these events, uh, and commingle that with how vulnerable you are and vulnerability. A very very tricky thing. I mean, this this goes down to you know what type of home you're living in, how many trees are surrounding your house. You know, v- vulnerability is is very very tricky. But part part of vulnerability, uh, part of the equation of vulnerability is just the population density. In other words, you have you know how big is how big are the bullseyes on your dartboard, uh, and how many of them do you have? And so as we see an increasing that's the kind of probability of these events increasing further to the east along the Mississippi River corridor and, and portions to the east. Of course, our population density there is just so much greater, and we are really multiplying uh, the probability of having these tornado disasters. Yeah, and not only the population, but I know that you also spoke to the fact that the density of mobile homes, uh, especially in the southeastern half of the United States, that also is going to play a, a major role in some of this too, right? Yeah, it's, it's uh, again, vulnerability is super tricky. I mean, one of the aspects is uh, housing, and you do not want to be in a mobile home during a tornado event, not even in the F zero. Uh, we have several uh, cases in history where folks living in mobile homes, even with weak tornadoes, have been seriously injured uh, or even killed. And so um, that is one very unique aspect of the southeastern United States is that many counties in the southeastern United States, uh, you know, their housing uh, it could be upwards of 60, 70, even 80 percent mobile home. Uh, by a fraction of, of total housing. And so that creates a really, really unique issue when tornado hits those places. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing just coming to my mind, too, I, I follow usually a lot of groups of storm chasers online just to kind of see what their experiences have been. And anytime someone brings up, generally speaking, areas perhaps into Missouri and even much of Illinois, anywhere east of the Mississippi River, some of them refer to it as jungle chasing because you have so much in the way of tree cover Uh, that it makes it really difficult to see a lot of the features with these storms as they kind of blow on through. Could that have another impact, too, uh, in terms of the public's perhaps perception, not being able to really visualize things easily like you can in the plains? That's exactly right, especially, I think, in Oklahoma, once you get east of the the I-35 corridor, the terrain gets very hilly, and there's a lot more trees, and then it sort of continues eastward until you get into the Mississippi Delta area, where things kind of flatten off. In Illinois and Indiana, at least for the most part, especially northern and central Illinois, and really most of Iowa, except for ha- perhaps maybe far northeastern Iowa, is, is fairly flat. I mean, you do have your rolling hills, and certainly in, in some locations, but you don't have the tree density that you have in the southeastern United States, and that tree density is another one of these pieces, if you will, of vulnerability that can make it uh, much more difficult to spot these storms, and therefore, uh, you know, you really may not think that they're a threat. Yes, definitely. Um, In this study, was it 
easy to find kind of a correlation as to why this this shift may be occurring. And we know it's just not tornadoes, but I believe in the study, too, you mentioned that the actual ingredients needed, for example, the STP or significant tornado parameter, that's been rising, too, off to the east of, of where the traditional tornado alley is. Is there anything we can kind of tie all that together with, or is there still more work that needs to be done? Well, that's really the million-dollar question, Andrew. I mean, right now we are very confident that the trends are real and are happening. Um, we have really, you know, only hypotheses at this point as to why uh, they're changing, why the significant tornado parameter, which is this environmental metric that kind of tells us how favorable the atmosphere is for tornadoes, along with tornado counts and frequency. We know that those things are changing, but uh, right now it's going to take a lot more what we call attribution science to be able to kind of run models and uh, really be able to pick apart what's causing the change is to change the jet stream and then then the next question of course will be well what's causing the jet stream to change and so uh usually when you ask those sorts of questions uh one answer brings up another question and uh you kind of so-called you know opening pandora's box at that point so we're gonna really at this point the best thing for us is to uh just continue to watch these trends and uh, do what we can to try to attribute what we can What's the biggest thing that, that people should kind of take away from this study, if you will? Um, what, what should their eyes be open to in terms of seeing kind of this activity spread a little bit closer to even right here at home in the Quad Cities? For the, you know, for the average person, uh, sorry, this is going to kind of be a big nothing burger, but there's not a really a lot for the average homeowner to take away. I mean, your average person, uh, you know, living in a home in Iowa, Illinois, is not going to do anything different because they're going to get one or two more tornadoes in a decade. Um, that's just not something, you know, even I as a homeowner, is I'm, I'm not going to be very worried about that. Just the, the background probability of having a tornado is so low to begin with. But this does become important for companies that are setting premiums, emergency managers that are now worried about resources for their local communities because they're having more of these events in the future. And I think more than anything, it just underscores the, the need to be ready. And, uh, you know, it may not happen to your home, but it may happen to your, 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 your community. It may happen to somebody else or, or it may be you, you know, and you can't sort of there and worry uh, about, really you know it's that it's not going to happen to you and be mm-hmm. complacent you have to always have a plan in place and uh you really can't you know wait for that event to make i, I see so many times andrew i go through these communities after these storms and i survey with the national weather service and they're like you know we we didn't really have a plan in place or so on and then you know they're always weather wise and, and they're ready to go after the event but it shouldn't take these big events to to make people kind of think about what they need to do Absolutely. And it's it's a, an event that's become so common, I think, for a lot of us in the Midwest that, you know, we're almost born and raised with the awareness of, of what to do in a situation for a tornado warning and severe thunderstorm warning. But sadly, yes, there are many individuals that haven't been through this experience or maybe they haven't grown up here and they're just not sure. And like you said, a lot of times it's too little too late uh, until the event's already on top of them, sadly. 
Well, that's exactly right. I think that's why we need to be vigilant. We can't get complacent. We need to continue to educate people that, you know, things like the trends in tornado activities are changing and that, you know, re-ups the conversation again and people, you know, their ears perk up and they hear about it. And then uh, they remind themselves that they need to have a plan in place or, or you know, to think about what they're going to do during severe weather. You know, remember the difference between watches and warnings and so on. It's just a good reminder that we need to be ready for severe weather and it can happen anytime, any place, as long as the atmospheric ingredients are favorable. Couldn't have said it better myself, uh, good friend there. Um, one last question for you before I before I let you go for the day. I know you're working on another project, and this is something that's, again, kind of behind the scenes, but you're, you're kind of working with toying the idea of looking a little bit further into the future when it comes to forecasting uh, perhaps some tornado events. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you've been working on? Sure. So I'm uh, a member of the NOAA, which is National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's sub-seasonal to seasonal task force. And as a part of that group, uh, our, our research group at NIU is really trying to focus on to the sub-seasonal realm for your, your listeners that are not familiar is the forecast time window of two weeks to two months. And you might be thinking to yourself like, whoa, we can't, you know, we're, we're, we're not so good at forecasting, say, temperatures at day four or five. How are we going to predict tornadoes? And the answer to that is, well, we're not specifically forecasting a tornado that's going to hit your house at those sort of lead times. We're instead interested in the patterns that are either favorable or perhaps not favorable for severe storms across the entire United States. So it's a much more, you know, high level overview forecast of we see something happening in the Pacific Ocean that may translate downstream to the North America continent and then might influence the severe weather in a positive or a negative way. And uh, we're really actively pursuing topics uh, of research in those areas and really uh, more than anything to try to give people longer you know lead time outlooks on when we might be in favorable patterns for severe storms so it's been a really exciting thing it's a really new area of research and uh, it's been something that's really been uh, fun so far, and I think we'll be working on it for the next five or ten years. Awesome. Yeah, it's certainly been exciting to, to watch the website that it's hosted on and kind of see how it's been performing and what your thoughts have been. And so far, I, I personally, I've been very impressed, and uh, so have a lot of my colleagues. So definitely keep up a lot of the good work on that that you have going. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andrew. Oh, you betcha. Well, that'll wrap us up here uh, for Head in the Clouds. I want to thank you again, Dr. Victor Gensini, Northern Illinois University's assistant professor there. Uh, just an all-out weather whiz. He's been so nice in taking the time to not only do the story with us recently, but also to do this podcast here. So thank you again so much. And, of course, go Huskies. Go Huskies. <laughs> all right. Thank you, sir.